Yeah, on. Yeah! Hi! Aloha! Hello, Nubs. How are you? Welcome to Two Twins in an Album, and we are your hosts, Nubs and T, and we have lots of stuff going on tonight for you. Number seven. Seven. Where we are going to... Get into an untapped genre tonight. Well, certainly untapped on this humble podcast. You know, right from the get-go here, Nubs, I, I've got something to say. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm all ears. If this is going to be that kind of party, I'm going to stick my... <laughs> <laughs> now, that is not our album of choice tonight, but an infamous, infamous drop from the ill communication record by tonight's featured band, the B boys. It was like, a, a dr- this going to be that kind of party. I'm going to stick my, <laughs> you know, that whole song, it's actually a really cool track. B boys making with the freak freak and the entire song. I think it's about a minute and a half or so before, before this, if this going to be that kind of party, I'm going to stick my, you're listening to that entire track. Just waiting for that. We, we used to like just drive around and listen to that and just like laugh every single time we heard it. That song came on. We were hanging out at my neighbor's place and we just died. I mean, we just died. It was like the first time we'd ever heard it. Totally. I, I'm convinced that you could find any 40 something who was into music in the mid nineties. And if you say like the first three words of that, they'll finish it. If this is going to be that kind of party, I'm going to stick my... <laughs> I do want to start tonight as, as we um, we talk about the, the BC Boys Check Your Head uh, with, and I've done this uh, the last couple episodes, but I do want to give a definition. And the definition tonight is the word homage is defined as special honor or respect shown publicly. Something done or given in acknowledgement or consideration of the worth of another and homage is not only a big part of the BC boys as artists. And I do think this was the album where they truly became artists, but throughout check your head, an incredible amount of respect and homage given to others. And it should be a good ass time to talk about, but first let's go around and round. three albums on the old turntable what do you got right now i've been listening to uh the beta band and the ep champion versions which came out in 1998 it has the ever so famous dry the rain on it which was made very famous in the movie of my life also known as high fidelity and secondly is from uh, the beta band, and that's the Patty Patty Sound, which was an EP that came out in 1998. 
in a little bit of a transition from champion versions into even a more textured sound. And third would be uh, a group called the Beta Band with Los Amigos de Beta Bandidos, which is an EP that came out in 1998 and uh, furthered the sound of the previous two with even more creativity. So that's what's on my turntable, T. So if I just, let's see, carry the two. I think you just gave the three EPs by the Beta Band as you're round and round. That's correct. That is the three EPs by the Beta Band. That what just happened? That's what just happened. Well, I like it. And obviously, uh, good choices. And I guess we're talking about homage, good homage to one of your favorite films, High Fidelity, and one of your favorite all-time record stores, uh, Championship Vinyl in Chicago, Illinois. So well done. You got it. What's rounding around for you, T? Uh, one is a, a new record that just came out this week by a band you and I both like quite a bit called Haken, uh, their album Virus. And I'm really hoping it'll be a bit of a bounce back. I was not a huge fan of their most recent release uh, a couple years back. And so far, haven't fully dug into this, but certainly have given it a couple spins. It's really good. The second is not a new album. This is uh, The Raw and the Cooked by the Fine Young Cannibals. Great band. Huge fan of Roland Gift. And those guys, some really, really good tracks on that. And then the third one, something completely different, is uh, by the great Pantera. It's actually their live album, 101 Proof. And, you know, typically I don't let too much time go by without, you know, digging pretty hard into this. I think it really captured, you know, their their kind of mid to late 90s live run. It was actually a time that we saw them at the uh, OzFest. I mean, that band was just so terrifying at this time just so much muscle to them it's really an outstanding listen and uh that is a uh, that is one beefy live album you know we, we saw them and they were so loud i mean we saw a lot of loud shows i remember Soundgarden was one of the loudest bands i ever saw but oh pantera was just so loud I mean, but so good too i mean they, they were just uh you you were totally engaged at a Pantera show. Yeah, it was an amazing Ozfest. It was Typo, Pantera, Machine Head was there. Ozzy had a great set. We 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 saw a good one that day. No, those are good picks, man. As always. Well, I appreciate that, Nubs. I mean, look, uh, I'm here to try and please the audience, but listen, I'm also here to try and please you. Well, you do a good job of pleasing me. I'm going to try and give you some pleasure. Speaking of pleasure, part of the reason we thought this one was important is groups decide, are they going to be rappers or are they going to be artists? This is the album where the Beastie Boys, who went on to become a very important group of their time, And Check Your Head is really the moment where they stopped being rappers and goofballs and producer reliant. I mean, part of what was fun about, you know, doing some of the homework on Check Your Head and and kind of where the band was right around this time, you realize that, you know, their first two albums, there was so much sampling and so much production. This was the point where you really got to see that these guys had a ton of appreciation for other types of music, other musicians, other genres. These guys really loved music. And I think it's one of the underrated things about them. 
how important that was to them. But part of what was really cool about digging into them at this time period was in wanting to go beyond just being a band that, that samples. I think that Check Your Head has one of the best album covers. At least it's one of my favorites of all time. And part of what's really intriguing about the cover to this album is that all three of the guys have their instrument cases. And I think it was a signal right away that number one, this was going to be different. And number two, you were going to get some musicianship. And we'll kind of talk a little bit more specifically about that as we dig into the band members and the people that really had a heavy hand in the development and creation of Check Your Head. So, so Beastie Boys with Check Your Head are certainly proving that they're a band. But remember, they started out as a, a punk group. If you listen to those early EPs, it's just raw, unabashed, can hardly play their instruments, punk. And one thing I've always wondered is, did they intend for that second life, which was, you know, all the mainstream success of License to Ill and then the creative prowess of Paul's Boutique, was that intentional on their part or was that more created by Rick Rubin and sort of the, the machine of the record label they were on? But they still had to get a couple of the pieces around them in order to really make that happen. And we'll talk a little bit further about that. I think you, you can't really understand what's special about Check Your Head without talking a little bit about the previous two albums. And certainly... You know, you had two iconic producers working with this band during their first two records, Rick Rubin on License to Ill and the Dust Brothers on Paul's Boutique. Now, two very different outcomes of those albums. License to Ill was enormous and had seven singles and sold 10 million copies. You know, Rick Rubin was a basically a co-writer on all those songs. I, I think he had a very, very heavy hand in the development of those tracks. I think that's pretty evident. And then in their second album, you know, they were working with the Dust Brothers, who I think also had a very heavy hand in those tracks. Now that album didn't do very well. That was commercially basically a flop. Very comparable to Weezer's Pinkerton. You know, it kind of came out, it flopped, People didn't understand it. And now you fast forward, you know, 30 years later or whatever it is, and it's a classic. You know, somebody called it the Sergeant Pepper of hip hop. So funny how that happens sometimes. But those two experiences with albums that were so producer driven, so sampling driven, in a lot of ways, a little bit of a novelty act when it came to their goofball stuff as far as their rhymes and their lyrics and those type of things and that changed with check your head so the musicianship changed the composition changed the approach completely changed and a lot of that had to do with some of the people they had around them so let's dig into it a little bit nerdy deets done dirt cheap you want some dirty deets yeah you want some dirty deets check your head was released in april of 1992 recorded in Southern California. And the band kind of found themselves, I think at a, a little bit of an early crossroads as far as getting the right producer, 
and getting the right frame of mind to really turn this into not a rap record, but a musician's record. There are two extremely important people on this record that many BC Boys fans know about, but you know, others may not. Check your head and sort of this new direction for the BC Boys would have never happened if it weren't for Mario Caldado Jr. and Mark Nishita. You know who those two cats are? Well, one of them is the great Money Mark. Money Mark. For sure. Who I hope we'll talk more about. Because Money Mark is actually much more than just the Beastie Boys guy. And the other, I don't know. Mario C. You can't front on that. Ah. Mario C. was the producer of Check Your Head along with the BC Boys. And came to know the band in an interesting way. Mario C. was the engineer on Paul's Boutique. So he had worked with the band before in more of an engineering role. He met Money Mark, the second guy we're going to talk about, back in 1979 when he recorded one of Mark's bands. So those two guys go way back. And through that, Mario C. met Matt Dyke, who at that time had just become the founder of this little record label called Delicious Vinyl. And he worked with Matt Dyke on a couple of artists you might know, Tone Loke and Young MC, on a couple of their hit records. And then one night at Matt Dyke's apartment, these five dudes came over whom Mario C. had never met. And these dudes were Mike Diamond, Adam Yauch, Adam Horowitz, Michael Simpson, and John King. Now, I think we know who the first three are. Do you know who the second two are? No, I don't. Well, the second two are also known as Easy Mike and King Gizmo, affectionately known as a pair, as the Dust Brothers. The Dust Brothers, yeah. So these guys all get hooked up, and Mario C. gets brought in to engineer the Paul's Boutique record with the Dust Brothers. And obviously did a great job. I mean, you talk about a difficult album to engineer, you know, with all those different sampling splices and making that all work. I think he really showed his chops in the studio. And while it was a bit of a commercial failure at the time, clearly it's become a, a modern, you know, creative and, and very crucial gem of a record. You know, part of it was these guys exploded with, you know, you got to fight for your right to party and no sleep till Brooklyn. And, you know, some of these kind of anthemic hits off of License to Ill. And I think a lot of people were looking for that in Paul's Boutique and found something completely different. Now, there were a few that said, hmm, this is really interesting what these guys are doing. And this is really different. Um, But most people really didn't like Paul's Boutique at the time. What those two albums really have in common is the complete emphasis on sampling. Now, somewhere along the way, the band decided they wanted Mario C to produce their next record. And 
one of the things that makes him really important is you can kind of tell that he was the first producer they worked with that kind of said, all right, guys, I'm going to let you be what you are. We're going to put instruments in your hands. We're going to establish a style and a sound that is raw, that is a little bit more stripped down, and that is your own. And you're going to compose and you're going to play. And that was a big deal. That was a big deal because if these guys had gotten together with any other producer who wanted to take control of the, of the tried and true sampling approach and wanted to compose another license to ill to sell a bunch of records. I mean, that easily could have happened. So a big credit to Mario C and, and it's funny, they, they're constantly, you know, said from the onset, the definition of homage, the BC boys are constantly paying homage to Mario C on check your head, as well as the albums that followed because he worked with them on check your head, ill communication and hello nasty. He produced all three. So, you know, Mario C you can't front on that. You can hear and so what you want. Mario C likes to keep it clean. He says in intergalactic, that's a record because of Mario. He says in root down, on the boards is the man they call Mario. They say that in sure shot. I mean, they're constantly, you know, giving props to Mario C. And I think part of that was, yeah, it was great to work with Rick Rubin. Yeah, it was great to work with the Dust Brothers. But now we're with a guy who's, who's letting us be what we are. A huge key to the album is them playing their instruments. I mean, that really was the, that was the hook to this album for so many people that just saw these guys as kind of, you know, bratty licensed to ill kind of brass monkey and all that kind of stuff. Once they got instruments back in their hands, it just changed the whole dynamic. They became more creative. They became a little more earthy. Uh, Everything became just a little more organic in the way that it developed. And uh, yeah, I think Mario C has a huge, role in that. And I do love all the shout outs. I think that's so great. You know, you just kind of love the way the BC boys pay so much homage to so many people in so many different styles and so many different genres in their music and in their words. And I agree. I think, I think the shout outs for them are beyond just what you see in regular hip hop shout outs. I think there's a lot of real appreciation for Mario C. And I think in a lot of ways, like I said, it's because he let him be them and check your head is really the first example of that we also have to talk about money. Mark, essentially the fourth member of the BC boys, I think it's fair to say, particularly when it came to instrumentation, you know, when the band would really start to utilize real instruments, uh, some of the keyboard and organ elements that you started to hear a lot particularly in check your head and ill communication. You know, a lot of that was money. Mark bringing it to the table. He was actually born in Detroit. He he lived there for his first handful of years. And he put out a really cool album in 1995 called Mark's keyboard repair. That's worth checking out, which are, which basically puts on display a lot of his skill. I mean, he was very good at getting different effects out of, the keys and obviously getting a lot of organ tones and those type of things that are really important to, to check your head and various elements. Do you have Mark's keyboard repair? I do. 
it's a it's such a fun album it's great those of you that that like the beastie boys particularly this era you can find this album pretty easily and purchase it he's got songwriting credits all over check your head and all over really all of the bc boys work for the rest of their time recording so while mario c only worked with them as the primary producer on three albums money mark worked with them throughout their entire career really starting with check your head he wrote the keyboard intro the, uh, to uh, the hit by Beck called where it's at which has become a pretty iconic little uh, soundbite of uh, of late 90s music and he also toured with omar rodriguez lopez of the mars volta and add the drive-in fame so clearly if you're playing with omar you you've got some musicianship i mean this guy really knows what he's doing he can he can play and more recently he toured with the les claypool uh whatever he's calling it delirium or whatever it is the claypool uh, lemon delirium exactly yeah. uh money mark recently um played keyboards with those guys on that tour so the instrumentals on this record and really the instrumentals that became kind of a staple of uh, the beasties albums going forward you can really give a lot of credit to money mark for that influence well again they became a band and he rounded them out as all over the map as this record is, and we'll certainly get into that map, he brought a cohesion to the band that was extremely important. You hear him all over this album. And speaking of the band, many people are versed in kind of the members of the BC Boys, and we won't spend too much time on the history there, but obviously three New York City kids, two from Manhattan, one from Brooklyn, Adam Yauk on the bass guitar, affectionately known as MCA. Mike Diamond, otherwise known as Mike D, he played drums. And Adam Horowitz, Ad Rock, who played guitar for the band. Adam Yauk, uh, as most people are likely aware, died in 2012 of a cancer that when diagnosed three years earlier, everyone thought was going to be very treatable. And it's the type of cancer that you know, at a certain level becomes extremely difficult to treat and unfortunately passed away three years later after that diagnosis. MCA had become a really interesting guy, fairly political. He was a, a very active Buddhist, very involved in some of the Tibetan independence movements back at that time. He also directed all the videos for the Beastie Boys. And actually the Criterion Collection has released a collection of all uh, of the Beastie Boys videos from their career, which kind of shows, I think they're the only band that's gotten that kind of treatment, but obviously they had some outstanding videos. And if you ever saw at the bottom of the label on MTV, the director was often listed as Nathaniel Hornblower. That was actually MCA. So a real artist within the group, and also a very unique, interesting guy. He, he met his wife in 1995. He was actually attending a speech by the Dalai Lama himself. And that's where he met his wife. So who says you can't pick up a chick at, uh, at the Dalai Lama speech? Huh? The Lama. Big hitter. Lama. Long. 
So there was a, obviously a tremendous, you know, outpouring of, of sadness and respect from the musical community as a whole when MCA passed away. I mean, and it wasn't just rap. These guys had become very respected. I think a big part of that is exactly the time period and exactly the album we're talking about today. So with MCA, I always think of he had kind of the deepest, you know, gruffiest rap voice. So whenever you hear that kind of tough, deepest voice of the trio, that was always Adam Yuck. Really, really great rap voice. Mike D was kind of more of the sort of middle to higher pitched voice um, with that really heavy New York City accent and played drums for this band. And obviously, I bet he was fun to jam with and kind of did a nice job of setting the tone from a groove standpoint on a lot of the instrumentals we're going to go through tonight and a lot of the instrumentals they continue to play thereafter. Yeah, none of them were all-stars on their instruments in the traditional sense by any means. But they all kind of played the way that they were as artists. You know, Mike D, a great groove behind the drums and MCA's bass playing was was hard and aggressive and you always felt like the strings were kind of hanging out for dear life whenever he was playing. And, and then ad rock was like kind of a, a, a dynamic front man. He was kind of fun to watch and he did kind of funny facial expressions and he, he was real animated uh, with his body while he played. And he's like the punk rocker, you know? So they, they all, they all brought their personalities to the table. Yeah, so you kind of beat me to it there. But Ad Rock, the third member on guitar. So he's got, you know, when you hear that whiny, kind of bratty, scrappy kind of rap voice, you know, it's Ad Rock. So once you kind of get that down, the the three guys become pretty easy to identify. The BC Boys were eventually elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012. It was actually, you know, sadly, it was probably the moment for most people when you knew that MCA was kind of in trouble because he wasn't able to show up. And uh, people at that point knew that, you know, his health must be getting bad. But really amazing for a band like this to be, you know, to receive that kind of honor. Um, That was a big deal at the time. And it was very cool at the time. You know, we talked about Toto two episodes ago. And unlike Toto, critics just adored the beastie boys i mean paul's boutique was critically beloved license to ill was completely critically beloved they loved check your head they loved pretty much everything this band did uh in 1992 spin who's probably an outlet that i would say we probably trust a little bit more than some others at that time named check your head the number four album of 1992 so let's find out Nubs, how you discovered Ad Rock, MCA, and Mike D. Nubs, what are your Beastie Boys memories, if any? I've got a bunch because I, I really rode this group through several of their lives um, was not aware of them early on when they were doing the punk thing. Cause it was pretty underground. I think it was more of kind of, kind of a New York thing. And then license to ill came out 
you've got to fight for your right to party was, you know, all over the place. Uh, and I couldn't stand it. I, I still despise that album. It, it, it's far and away one of my least favorite albums of all time. I, I'm so sick of those songs. And I think the album is super overrated. And when it, when it came out, I was into so many other things. I just didn't care about it, but it was played so much. I mean, Girls and Brass Monkey and You Gotta Fight For Your Ride. And I, I mean, it was all over the place. By the time Paul's Boutique came out, I, I really wasn't engaged with the Beastie Boys at all. I was very much into other things. I, I, and I virtually ignored this band until one fateful day in, I want to say it was seventh grade. But you and I, uh, we lived kind of by a subdivision and we, we had a friend who we'll, we'll, we'll call Mike G oh, yes. for the purpose of this podcast. And he was a, he was a fellow drummer in, in the school band. And we listened to a few of the same things. And he was, he was a nice guy. And we went over to his house. Terrible drummer, by the way, Mike G. Terrible. Yeah, he, he was horrible. Yeah. Like could not keep a beat. Couldn't keep time, you know. And we went over to this guy's house and he had an older brother. And they must have had some bit with each other where his older brother was playing So What You Want. And I, even, I did not even know it was the Beastie Boys. I really didn't. A little, little boombox, cassette boombox. Yeah, like a boombox. And he was playing this song. And it just sent Mike G into a cyclone of anger. I mean, Mike G hated this song so much and it's weird because like i was pretty in tune at this point of music i hadn't even heard this song i didn't i had no clue it was and he was playing it over and over and over again and mike mike g was just getting super pissed off and it was this hilarious thing for us to watch because we're like man look at these two brothers they were they were almost killing each other because so much you want was playing on a loop and I remember leaving Mike G's house and thinking, you know, I, I kind of like that song, you know, and eventually found out, oh, man, that's Beastie Boys. It's like the new Beastie Boys song. And then eventually the, the video came out and, and the whole thing, you kind of put the whole thing together. Oh, that's Beastie Boys. And they're they're sort of growing up. And and, you know, it's a very memorable video. The slow motion thing is really cool. I'm sure we'll talk about it. So to me, the peak of of this group's career by far would be check your head, but especially ill communication and what came out before is, is not as interesting to me. And, and certainly where they went after is incredibly uninteresting. This really is the heart of the group, but, but the Mike G story is, it was my re-entry into Beastie Boys. The Mike G story was 28 years ago. I wasn't sure tonight if you were going to pull that one out because that was obviously my number one wondrous story on my list too. I was like, let's see if he says it. I, I should have known that that you were all over it and you were going to tell the Mike G story. But yeah, that that was uh, that was certainly my uh, one of my biggest recollections with this album. And what was funny about Mike G? First of all, Mike G's brother kind of looked like he could have been in the Beastie Boys. You kind of a- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just that annoying older brother just trying to piss his younger brother off. And something set Mike G off when he heard he just hated so much you want. It was something about 
the tune or he just, the guy just hated it. And he went nuts whenever it was played. And the thing I remember the most is I remember standing there with you and we both thought this was so funny and everything, but I remember thinking, you know, boy, Mike G really hates this song. And it was kind of like, am I supposed to hate this song? Cause I think this is pretty awesome. You know, it was like, I wanted to hear it again. Cause I dug it, but I was confused because you know, Mike G, he like, he was a Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd kind of guy. I mean, we, we bonded on all those bands and I was like, boy, he really hates this. Am I supposed to hate it too? Cause I really like it. You know? And I remember just wanting to hear so what you want after that. And obviously the video exploded and it, it became a huge hit, but this was early. This was certainly, certainly the first time we ever heard check your head. And, and we ever heard that song. One of the things I always remember about the BC boys is seeing them on that Lollapalooza, which was on ill communication because, you know, they spent just as much time on their instruments as they did, you know, running around the stage, jumping around the stage, rapping. And, you know, when you first saw this band, particularly when you'd see them on MTV performing and those type of things, you know, they were often just doing kind of their rap thing. And even at sort of a mini set, like it was at Lollapalooza, I think they played for like an hour and 20 or something like that you really realize that you were seeing a band to your point and they were doing their instrumentals and they were, you know, it was very musical. It was very cool. And money Mark obviously was on stage with them. So I always remember that show just being not really what you'd expect to see from those guys at that time. And you realized these guys are musicians and these guys are a band. If I remember right, they kind of played as, as, Sunset was happening. I mean, it was just a really, it was a gorgeous day at Pine Knob Music Theater. And it, and it was just a very, very memorable thing. And, and at that time, they were sort of a musical thoroughbred. You know, they were, their whole show was, was really well orchestrated. Yeah. When, they, when they did the instrument songs, they were really on. And, you know, the hip hop stuff went over well, especially with a, a festival crowd like that. And so you could take the group seriously at that point. And they were still a lot of fun. I mean, we're talking about a, so what you want, you know, I mean, it's the humor was still there, but they were making more of an artistic statement as you started off with, and you could kind of take them a little bit more seriously. And for a musician that was important. You know, the, the thing was no longer cartoony, you know, now, now they were musicians who were making a statement that was worth spending your time and energy on. The only other thing I'll touch on uh, as we wrap up Wonder Stories here is there have really only been two songs that I can ever remember in my entire life where I locked myself into a room and basically didn't come out until I knew all the words. And the first one was Brown Eyed Girl, uh, Van Morrison, and the second was Pass the Mic. And boy, I spent probably an entire weekend just running that song back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until I knew every word. And to this day, to this day, nubs, I could still give you the whole thing if you wanted it. I'm not gonna, but I could. All right, well, let's put the needle on the record. We got 20 tracks here, so let's go. But most people probably weren't expecting on track one of the BC Boys' third album, 
to hear anything other than the Beastie Boys. But what did they hear instead? Well, of course, Cheap Trick live at the Budokan. As we open 1992's Check Your Head with Jimmy James. Again, we're talking about homage. This entire song is basically one big tribute to Jimi Hendrix. The original version had six Jimi Hendrix samples. Are You Experienced, EXP, Third Stone from the Sun, Foxy Lady, Still Raining, Still Dreaming, and Voodoo Child. This was kind of part of the sample song approach that you saw more on Paul's Boutique and on License to Ill. So kind of cool. You're leading off with not just the voice of Robin Zander on Live at the Budokan by Cheap Trick, but also you kind of have this whole Jimi Hendrix tribute. And it's a, I think it's a great track one that right away, most fans probably realized that they were hearing something pretty different. A great low end, as so much of this album does, sounded terrific on a car stereo. And to your point, you know, you, you buy the CD, which probably most bought it in that format, and you throw it in your car stereo on the way back from the record store, and it sounds pretty booming. I'm, I'm sure that it sounded very good with a set of kickers coming out of a car in 1992. Remember kickers? Oh, sure. The, the booming system you're talking about. Yeah, those huge bass speakers were literally part of the music then became the sound of your old Buick car that was passed down from your grandpa shaking. Yeah, those were kickers. If this going to be that kind of party, I'm going to stick my... Yeah, yeah. Track two, where we really see the first big influence from Money Mark. Funky Boss. So again, you know, very riff heavy, very funky and instrumentation going toward this. And, and really where you first hear, which you hear very, very actively throughout this entire album, this contribution and this influence from Money Mark. Funky Boss is kind of an interesting story behind it. The band saw they were kind of out and about at a store and they saw something they thought was funny at the time. This was around the time of the Iraq war and they were actually selling desert storm trading cards. And the band just thought this was hilarious. So they actually purchased this pack of uh, desert storm trading cards. And within that they actually got, I mean, I don't know if this was like, like getting a Ken Griffey jr. Card at the time, but they got Norman Schwarzkopf's uh, card and, Money Mark, uh, to be funny, put a black check mark on his head. And Yauk thought it was funny. And he said, check your head. And that's actually where the name of the album came from, was this pack of trading cards and Money Mark putting a black check mark on Schwarzkopf's head. And there you go. That's how the album title came about. So they actually wrote the song about George Bush 45 during the Gulf War. It's a little bit of a 
kind of, you know, badassery type of song. Because at this time, there was actually, there's a lot of pride in our approach to, you know, fighting in the Middle East and we were winning the war. And there, you know, there was a lot of, you know, pride surrounding that. And, and this song has kind of that funny element of how it actually, you know, help lead to the title of the album and also kind of a little bit of a, I guess, tribute at the time to our president, which is kind of interesting. When I hear this song, I think about the theme to the People's Court. Do you remember the People's Court? That, that was Judge Wapner? Yeah, sure. And uh, Rusty the Bailiff? Yeah, Rusty, exactly. The theme to that had this sort of and that's what the kind of main riff of Funky Boss sounds like. I remember when I first heard it, I was thinking the song was really cool until the vocals come in. This this is one of those Beastie Boys motifs that they use. I, I think, I don't know if it's intentional annoyance, but sometimes they choose these vocal approaches where it's just like, oh, it's so annoying. And I can't figure out whether that's intentional or on purpose or it's part of the humor or what, but this is one of those. Well, it's a minute 36. It almost serves as a bit more of kind of an interlude, which you see, you know, at several stages throughout this album, but probably more important than, than anything else leads into really one of these signature songs on check your head, pass the mic. From a showcase standpoint, a musical standpoint, a beat standpoint, literally it's called Pass the Mic. It's all three members really showcasing, you know, their style and, and their approach to kind of these rhymes on this record. And I think it's really, really good. Again, I think people now certainly realize that they're getting something different from this band. Part of what's cool about it, this was a very early recording on this album. Mario C and Yauk were really you know, kind of the, the main composers of this. And it heavily samples a, a song called Big Takeover by Bad Brains. Now, the BC Boys were huge Bad Brains fans. You know, again, getting back to this appreciation for hardcore and punk, you know, they, they really paid nice homage to them in this song. And again, we see that we're going to see that throughout a lot of this. Those were live drums, and you can kind of tell that they're live drums with a lot of effects and with a lot of processing and of course they're looped but it is a live drum piece um which is kind of nice and kind of unique at the time um the flute sample is from a song called choir by james newton from 1982 and a lot of people recognize um the bass part and it was used later by dr dre on the chronic uh in a very recognizable baseline so yeah i just think it's a signature song off this album a, a great showcase for the band and uh to to most beastie boys fans would be i would guess would be up there for most of them if they were to kind of do a top five yeah this would make a lot of top five lists for sure and it's got dynamics in it that's what's different and then at the end you get these these other samples and things like that later on top of it so it's got nice kind of louds and quiets and in-betweens. And that's, that gave it a huge distinction from other songs within the genre. 
Yeah. And the whole pass the mic concept is cool. The way that they're, they each get their moment. The music is constantly changing throughout the song so nicely throughout it. And it's very flawless. Track four, Gratitude. Let's get the instruments back out. Gratitude. This was the third single from the album, and it's a really cool video. It actually pays direct homage to Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii. As far oh, it's, as it's not even homage. I mean, they they use the footage yeah. from Live at Pompeii, and and even while they're playing, they show like Pink Floyd's equipment that says Pink Floyd London. They they use some iconic scenes from Live at Pompeii in this video. It's really cool. And again, just so nicely influenced these guys were to loop in, you know, a basically a Pink Floyd tribute as part of this visually. It's just another example of these guys paying homage, showing appreciation and showing their influences. It was a song that MCA actually originally gave to a buddy of his for another band. You know, he loved the bass line, but really didn't like what they did vocally on the song. So they actually brought it back. Ad-Rock had another idea for this this vocal line that only Ad-Rock could pull off and it became Gratitude. So, you know, kind of like it as a track four. It's it's uh, obviously going from past the mic over to this is two very different genres and obviously came to define the variety of Check Your Head. And certainly by track four, you've already heard quite a few things. I love Ad-Rock's like, uh, mannerisms in the video. But he's like, he's getting the hands out and he's like doing the point and he's doing like the fist pumps and stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's, he, he's, he's kind of amazing in the video and it, and especially since it is doing this Pink Floyd Love at Pompeii thing, there's just this like hilarious juxtaposition between, cause when I think Pink Floyd Live at Pompeii, I think of them playing like echoes, you know, there's like big spacey, beautiful things. And you got this really hard edge aggressive song and you got ad rock like really getting into it and it's just great imagery i love it let's move on to a phrase that i use often towards nubs lighten up the band said it started out as a real kind of james brown you know funk type piece and then really turned into a, a, a Latin thing. And it's almost, you know, it's, it's basically a percussion jam. And it's the type of thing you'd hear on a, on a Fania Records, you know, type of composition, very salsa Latin based. So they actually got the percussion gear from this, this guy that they had met named Juanito down the street from the studio. And he owned this, uh, it was basically kind of a Latin, you know, instrument shop. And they had these funny stories about how Juanito would play these instruments in the shop to show the boys what it sounds like. And they were all percussion things. So, but I guess he would hold them like super close to the guy's faces and then play them super loud and just stare at them. 
you know, and the guys just thought this was so funny and so cool. They ended up buying a bunch of stuff from Juanito. And then eventually they said, Hey, come down to the studio and jam on a couple of our songs. And he actually plays on lighten up. And he also plays on groove homes later in the album. So the BC boys were completely the type of guys to do something like that. You know, meet a guy down the street at a percussion shop and you think he's kind of funny and kind of goofy. And next thing you know, he's, you know, showing up at your sessions and playing on your record, which is really cool. So, you know, except for the title cadence throughout, it's basically an instrumental and, and, you know, obviously brings in kind of more of that Latin feel to it. That's a great story. I never heard that. That's, I love that. I love the idea of the dude staring at him while he plays the percussion instruments. These guys were kind of every men, you know, they, they really were even when they did press or, when they accepted awards, you know, they were always just kind of being dudes and great, outstanding senses of humor, you know, from all three of the guys. I think you're right about being kind of every man. They really appreciated and I think enjoyed really beginning probably with check your head being musicians. Track six, it's finger looking good. Always made me laugh. Still kind of makes me laugh, but you know, it's got nice beats. I think most people probably think of this as uh, the prelude to So What You Want as much as anything else. What do you think of Finger Looking Good, Nubs? I thought the verses were really cool. The verses had a kind of a rolling flow to them. You know, the finger looking good part and everything was, yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of ridiculous. But when it went into those uh, verse sections, I thought it was cool. Certainly just kind of an avenue to get to So What You Want. They were wrapping up the recording of Check Your Head. They were basically at the end. And Mike D said, you know, we knew we needed one more banger. There was still something missing. And I think this was common back in those days. We talked about it a little bit with our lady piece where you know you just have to get that one song where you kind of feel like it's now completed and so they went to work on this banger that mike d thought that they still needed and ended up producing what was probably one of the most iconic songs and probably one of the most important songs of the 1990s and so what you want songs on the record that were just straight up written by the beastie boys and so what you want was one of them obviously you think of the video you know with the camera pointing up in the in the color cutaways which paid homage to the film predator with all those color sequences which was a psychological war fiction back in 1987 with schwarzenegger But this slow motion action, which if you remember was kind of movements in slow motion, but the lips remained in sync with the song at full speed. Very unique film production approach at this time. And you 
saw it quite, a, you know, used quite a bit thereafter. But this was one of the first examples of that. Uh, Money Mark on the keyboard used a Korg to get that organ lick at the beginning. It was the very last song recorded. I don't know what you think, Nubs. I, I think Mike D got his, got his banger. What do you think? I hear a pop song. I think this is just a really well-constructed pop song. It's got really hooky chorus. Um, even the guitar lick that's within the, the kind of post-chorus bit is really effective. And that, that's all pop sensibility right there. So That's all the guys. Because what's really happening in the background is a drum beat you know, during most of the song. Now you've got the guitar interlude and you've got some of the things that certainly make the song memorable. But to your point, if you're hearing pop sensibility and pop melody, that's all coming from the three guys, which shows that you can't just do that with rap. You know, there's, there's a definite vocal element to what these guys did. They were able to rap and they were able to rhyme, but also turn it into melody. Yeah, there's, there is something melodic about this. I mean, it's a very sing-along type of track, and that's, I think, why it resonated with mainstream audience. They're making it happen from a composition standpoint, but they're really making the song happen from a performance standpoint as well. Plug me in just like I was Eddie Harris, which is the opening line of the song from Ad Rock is actually a reference to an album by Eddie Harris, who was a saxophone player called Plug Me In, um, which was actually a very influential album at the time. This guy put his saxophone through a veritone device to kind of amplify it electronically and, and process it, which was very unique at the time. So almost kind of showing a little bit of an appreciation for, you know, kind of an important piece there of, of jazz history. I, I thought, I thought it was a reference to the movie major league. I thought it was too, you know, the, the crafty veteran, Eddie Harris. Yeah. Uh, Eddie, Eddie Harris. Yeah. But yeah, it was actually a 60s saxophone player, not, not the crafty veteran pitcher for the Cleveland Indians. Mario Sieb said that, you know, once he heard the rough cut of this song, he knew the album was complete and they had exactly what they needed. And they come in the next track, which really pairs what I would consider the, the, the mostly unlikely pairing of Mr. Theodore Anthony Nugent and Mr. Marcel Theo Hall, uh, otherwise known as the biz versus the Nuge. The there are a couple of things that are kind of interesting about this first you know obviously it's biz marquee and ted nugent the original song was off of the cat scratch fever album which was in 1977 called homebound biz marquee was a buddy of the beastie boys and he would come hang out and you know they all kind of wanted to do a funny you know interlude with with biz they had actually recorded Bismarcky doing Jeremiah was a bullfrog, which is the, the three dog night song, uh, joy to the world. And they were going to use that. And Bismarcky actually said, well, there's this other thing that I really like that is from a Ted Nugent record. And it's this really cool guitar lick. So it ended up being that. And he's singing about the beastie boys and you know, all that. It's kind of a funny little interlude, but obviously we all know, let me tell you a story in my wow. situation. I was talking and to this girl. I don't know. I kind of figured maybe we could have a sing-off. 
Oh, little Bismarck key off. I don't know. I just thought maybe, I don't know. What do you think? Are you, are you down? I could give it a shot. All right. Well, why don't we give this a go? And, uh, listen, I'm just going to cue you up here. What you do want to go first? Are you warmed up? Oh yeah. I'm I'm nice and warm. Nice and warm. Well, look, I mean, let me just find. Yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. And you say he's just a friend. And you say he's just a friend. Oh, baby, you, you get what I need. And you, thank you. If this going to be that kind of party, I'm going to stick my. <laughs> yeah. That was beautiful. I mean, wow. That was some good singing right there. I guess it's my turn now. Pressure's on. You, you got what I need. But you say he's just a friend. But you say he's just a friend. Oh, baby, yeah. You got what I need. But you say he's just... Thank you. Glorious. Glorious stuff there from... From Young Tof. You're gonna be okay. You you look a little out of breath. Yeah, I pulled a hamstring. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that we just spent like three minutes on a 30 second track, you got anything else you want to say about the biz versus the nuge? No, no. Let's move along. I did not know this until doing episode research. This is a cover song, the only cover song on the album, and one that's. A little surprising that it is. This is time for living. A lot of funk and hip hop artists were really into Sly and the Family Stone. You know, you know, very, very influential in a lot of those circles. But Time for Living was a Sly song, but this is a kind of hard, hardcore sort of punk version of this. It's kind of one of those covers where it's sort of like, you know, why didn't they just make this their own song? It's basically their own song, but they wanted to pay homage. They wanted to use the lyrics and use a semblance of kind of the, the vocal lines as the original Time for Living. Obviously, it's a minute 50, so almost as much of an interlude, but some interesting homage toward uh, one of their you know, funk influences. Yeah. And, and I agree with you on Sly and the Family Stone. It's worth going back and checking out some of those albums and you'll hear a lot of beats and things that were later sampled uh, by a lot of hip hop artists. I, I don't know who the most sampled, you know, group of the seventies is. It, it might be Parliament Funkadelic, but Sly and the Family Stone have to be up there. I mean, a ton of his work uh, was later sampled. And that just goes to show you how, uh, how inspirational they were to generations of, of artists. Track 11, something's got to give. Ad Rock says this is his favorite song on the record. 
not sure if I agree with them there, but it features James Bradley on percussion. And James Bradley played drums on a very famous Chuck Mangione song that you probably know. Feels so good. Feels so good. He played drums Ooh. on it. You're being way too nice. This is a stoner song, man. This is a total stone. I mean, total stoner song. No, something's got to give us far and away my favorite song on the album. It has just so innovative. I, I think this song is genius. I mean, when you think about the spaciness of it and kind of that real laid back groove to it and they're using all that vocal processing that would eventually become, you know, a little bit more of a cornerstone of some aspects of hip hop and funk music. And I, I just thought this song was stunning. You know, if you're really listening to check your head to learn about these guys as artists and how far they had grown, a song like this really stands out. I, I've always seen this song as something that, you know, real loyal Beastie Boys fans really appreciate. I think it's without question the high point of the album. Yeah, that's a that's a really cool take and, and a pleasant surprise. I, I wouldn't have guessed that. But very cool that spacey, stonery kind of track on the middle of the album is one that, that you really appreciate. That's great. Let's spend 30 seconds uh, on the Blue Nun. Our evening began in Peter Seychelles' comfortable study in his New York townhouse. Blue Nun was this super popular wine from the 1920s until basically like the 80s. And one of the interesting stories uh, branching off of this is Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols. They had a very uh, sort of infamous appearance on Tame's uh, television where the whole band, the Sex Pistols and couple groupies and all they did is kind of swear the whole time and talk about how stupid the show was. It's very funny. But anyway, Steve Jones, the guitarist, uh, apparently drank two bottles of Blue Nun um, prior to this television appearance. So, you know, listen. And then he, I, if I, he infamously swore. He said an F-bomb near the end of the appearance. The thing about that appearance is Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees is standing right there. And it was before she got famous. It's a really famous punk clip. You know, because yeah. it's mainstream show and Steve Jones is on there. And, and at the end, yeah, he, he throws out an F-bomb and it was like this legendary F-bomb. Well, apparently that was inspired by Blue Nun Wine. So oh, there you go. There you go. Probably didn't think we'd spend as much time on that uh, as we did. But that's just what you get, you know, from uh, two twins in an album on the old podcast here. Let's go to Stand Together, one of my favorites. I think Stand Together is really, really creative. Boy, the first minute of that song up until the the vocals coming in, I think just has a lot of power to it. I'm a I'm a huge fan of Stand Together. I think it's great. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's easily one of the best songs in the album. The instrumentation, the stuff they're doing with the kind of the synthesizer work. Again, Money Mark, you can hear him all over this thing, and he's all over this song. And and some great performances. Who sings the first verse? That's MCA. Yeah, I mean, he comes right in and just kind of takes over. So, yeah, Stand Together is, uh, it, it kind of caps off just an incredibly vibrant middle of the album. 
Then we get into one of these really terrific instrumentals that you see throughout Check Your Head. Pow! Now, obviously, there are a couple songs on Check Your Head and on Ill Communication that uh, that were later compiled on a you know instrumental compilation called The In Sound From The Way Out. And if you're at all into the Beasties instrumental funk stuff, you really want to pick up that compilation. It is a really, really strong collection of all of their best album tracks with you know live instruments it's cool what they do with the tempos on this they obviously start it up tempo and then they kind of slow it down and run the same piece during the back half of the song and then they're just kind of jamming with money mark on those keys so it's a couple minutes long but i think a really cool uh jam with kind of these varying tempos yeah the instrumental pieces on this and the album that will follow really capture the band discovering itself as players. And uh, that's why I'm glad you mentioned it. Cause that in sound from the way out compilation is, is such an important part of learning about beastie boys. And yeah, pow is a, a key part of all that. I mentioned earlier that there were two songs on this record that were solely written by the three band members. And the first one is so what you want. And this is the second one written by, Ad Rock MCA and Mike D, the maestro. The Maestro was a classic uh, effects pedal brand in the 60s and 70s. And they said that, you know, that they were notorious for being kind of crappy, but really unique, really intense pedals. And actually, there's one on the cover of this Eddie Harris album, Plug Me In. So all these things kind of tying together. It's a great track, probably considered, you know, a signature track on the album by, by many fans and uh, a nice piece. Yeah, you know, but at this point in the album, I start to get a little tired it's uh, your 13 songs in and it hit this real pinnacle with uh, some of the previous tracks. And then the maestro comes along and it just really isn't anything new. The sound at this point just starts to become just a little tired. Part of the criticism of this album, it's just too damn long. It is an epic, epic thing to get through. And, and we talked earlier about, does it wind in and out of genres to a point of exhaustion and i would say yes and this is the first moment this is the first kind of crack in the window where you think oh man uh is is this record ever going to end because if you think about it if it would have ended after track 13 you would have an undisputed classic and you would have something that's just completely focused and and something where literally every song has a true purpose on the album, maybe the exception of, you know, the one or two interludes. But by this point, the maestro just doesn't, it just doesn't feel like it's anything new. It feels like, okay, we've kind of heard this already. And, and the album just kind of keeps dragging along here. Track 16. Here's another one. That's pretty memorable from the, uh, in sound from the way out compilation groove homes. (laughs) 
Richard Groove Holmes was a famous jazz keyboardist. He actually died during the recording of the remainder of the album. So they decided to, uh, not only through kind of the sound and the style, but obviously the name of the song to pay homage to Groove Holmes, who was a favorite of the band and a favorite of, of Money Mark. This is Money Mark's favorite track on, on the record, which isn't too surprising since it features uh, the organ so much. It's really funny. They, they did, made an appearance on MTV when they were promoting the release of Check Your Head and they performed uh, So What You Want. And then they, they sort of became the house band. I think they were wanting to showcase their, you know, their instrumentation, you know, as part of the release. So they kind of became the house band on this MTV show. And so they were kind of playing in and out of commercials. And at one point they were actually playing Groove Homes and it was, it was just so 90s. They had the guitar just jacked up so loud. And Ad Rock plays a pretty like minuscule sort of low in the mix wah part. And typical 1992, they just have that cranked up on MTV. And then Money Mark is playing this just amazing organ solo on top and you can hardly hear it, you know? So <laughs> it's kind of funny to see the the mixing treatment that, that existed back in 1992, which I'm sure the band didn't appreciate, but great instrumental here. It's pretty solid. I mean, it, it, uh, it's one of my least favorite tracks on In Sound From Way Out because it, it's got a great first minute. And then it sort of doesn't, you know, really go anywhere. It, it certainly settles in a pocket. And I think Money Mark's stuff on the organ is, is really cool. But again, it just sort of goes on a little too long. It, it kind of never really twists and turns in some of the ways that the other instrumental songs do. So again, things just kind of getting a little lethargic here in the second half of the album. Well, I would concur with that on track 17 here live at PJ's. Um, you know, I think it's one of those songs that that probably does provide a little bit of drag. Cool that they did kind of the simulated live performance and all that. It's one where they lost the original song and then they actually re-recorded it, which is kind of why it sounds a little bit more cleanly produced compared to some of the other stuff where they just kept the dat originals. See, so, I'm, I'm glad to know that because I was curious about that because the, the sound quality in this song is completely different from the surrounding songs. That makes sense. They actually lost them, so they had no choice but to, but to re-record. But it is interesting to hear kind of this, this cleaner approach that you got on live at PJ's. Now a little Money Mark uh, uh, solo time here. Just a one-minute track, Mark on the bus. Sit on the seat and I dream myself away. Maybe after a few, um, I don't know, chemicals, maybe after a few chemicals decided to uh, put a vocal over it. So, so that's Mark on the bus track 18. Well, I think it's booty professor booty. Professor, what's another word for pirate treasure? Well, I think it's booty. 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 That's what it is. Yes, I got Apparently, this is a diss song uh, against MC Search. MC Search was the guy in third base. 
the guy with the glasses. Ah, there you go. He's actually, he's gone on to be kind of a pretty successful guy on the radio as a host. And now he's got a pretty successful podcast. I think they have that song pop goes the weasel, which was a big kind of rap hit in the late eighties, early nineties. And they said they would just sit around and laugh at him. They said he was just dancing on TV, like a, like a fool. So Yauk actually was the guy that kind of said, Hey, let's, we haven't dissed anybody yet on this record. So let's do it. It was actually the last single released in December. So this was eight months after the album was released. And, and you mentioned it a little bit on our lady piece, this idea that, you know, back in this time, albums really had longevity. Yeah, just the overall music cycle was so much slower. Uh, but hey, I got, every hip hop album needs a, a diss song on it, right? So I guess this is their diss song. <laughs> Track 19, the last instrumental of the record, In Threes. <laughs> You know, obviously they they decided to close it in a sort of more mellow fashion with Namaste. But I think, you know, having this punchy uh, instrumental as the second to last track, um, I think it's a nice way of doing it within threes. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely a highlight of the instrumentals. Sounds great on the compilation. Kind of cool 70s inspired guitar work. I, you know, so much of what they did was vintage and in threes just sounds like a very vintage song i mean most of their instrumentals sound sort of like they could have been on the shaft soundtrack you know um with that funky edge and in threes is certainly no exception to that it might be it might be the shaftiest of all of the shaft inspired instrumentals that the band did i think they were very heavily influenced and oftentimes probably paying homage to black exploitation music you know i think that was certainly you can tell whether it might be you know shaft or Superfly or across 110th Street or some of those classic, you know, black exploitation soundtracks were probably in these guys' catalog, I would think. Let's close it up with the final track, a bit of a mellow number, Namaste. You know what she's talking about. And there it is, 20 tracks later, Check Your Head is completed to, to what we just talked about on threes. A lot of black exploitation influence on this one. In fact, I, I had that in my, in my note for Namaste even before we mentioned it in the last track. But I think you can really hear that in this. Mario C said it's a nice and sweet track, a very zen moment for the album. And I think kind of a cool way to close it up. All right. So, Nubs, did Check Your Head matter? Check Your Head does matter. Uh, within its genre, it did a lot to further hip-hop music. It brought in the live instrumentation. It also did a lot for the mainstream. To have a song like So What You Want become as big of a hit as it was, was certainly a crossover thing. Um, it was pop enough to be pop and rock enough to be rock and certainly hip-hop enough to be hip-hop. And so it matters for its influence it certainly matters because it it really extended the life and career of this band you know if it weren't for check your head bc boys would have been sort of those weird guys from new york that did those couple albums in the mid to late 80s and they did the song about partying but this reintroduced them to the world 
as uh, something really innovative and very creative. So I do think the album matters without question. What do you think, T? Does Check Your Head matter? Oh, I think it does. You know, you've got a band here that obviously has become very, very important. And this was the point where they decided, you know, do we want to keep being you know, kind of a silly rap group or do we want to become a band? And I think it's the album where the BC Boys became artists. I think it's the album where the BC Boys became a band. I think it's the album where they kind of showed people that they weren't as good as their producer, which could have been argued that between Rick Rubin and the Dust Brothers, their previous two albums perhaps were. Again, the album cover says it all, sitting with their instrument cases. You know, they wanted to make clear that they're here to stay. They're not just going to rap over samples their whole career. And I think that's, you know, kind of part of what's cool about this journey that Check Your Head takes you on is it really does zigzag quite a bit. And it really does cover a lot of genres. But you know what? Every song to me is a Check Your Head song, whether it's the Latin piece, whether it's the straight up rap song, whether it's the punk tune with the real instruments, whether it's the funk jazz instrumental stuff, it all sounds like check your head to me. Well, this will be interesting. Let's get to the final cut here and nubs on the beastie boys. Check your head. Is it on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or is it by any chance? In the for sale bin, what would you say? T, Beastie Boys, check your head, for me, is going right into the sale bin. A majority of the second half of it is just a disaster. And when you rate an album, you're rating the whole album. And the first 12, 13 tracks are fabulous. And they really take you on a musical journey. But the more you get into it, the, the more outdated it gets. And that's a word I'll use for it. It's, it. It gets a little outdated. It gets really long. And it, it becomes very clear that the way to experience Beastie Boys is through compilations. The, the, the good stuff on Check Your Head, you could get in a variety of other places. The in-sound from way out really captures the instrumentals from this kind of golden period of their instrumental work perfectly. And the more that I went into this album top to bottom, the more and more I realized that yeah, I don't really need this album as part of a collection. I think ill communications, a more complete work that would fall more under the kind of, you know, collecting dust area, or maybe even in the collection, but it really chugs to a, a, a rather, um, lackluster finish. And for that, it's in the for sale bin. Dying to know, where do you have this in your final cut? It's on the turntable. And part of the reason for that is when you have a band that really is as important as the BC boys have become, you know, a rock and roll hall of fame type of group. And it's as easy as it is for me to kind of select what album you'd want to keep. If you only could pick one, that's kind of on the turntable type category for me. Now, one of the things that I, I love about this record, and I, and I get what you're saying that, you know, when you got 20 tracks and, you know, they're not all going to be winners and sometimes things can drag a little bit. What I love about it is it takes you in so many different directions, but it feels cohesive. It feels like, they're all check your head songs, even if they're different genres, even if they're different styles. 
it all to me feels like check your head. And, you know, I think as the band went on, you know, ill communication was good, but that one, you know, kind of dies off quite a bit in the back half too, if you revisit it. And I agree with you. I don't really think they made a great album after that. So uh, for me, it's on the turntable. I think it's, uh, it's not only classic, but it's very important and was a really, really critical stage in the um, career and in the progression and evolution of a, of a pretty damn important band. All right. Well, let's close it out in our usual fashion and kind of cool down episode seven with a little. If this going to be that kind of party, I'm going to stick my. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Wrong drop there. Wrong drop. Wrong drop. Let's go in your head. You got it. I think Dolores only wants two tonight. I think she only wants two. Nubs, what's in your head? In my head right now is uh, better than Ezra in the blood, which I think was the opening track on the deluxe album. Mm -hmm. Really solid opener. Good band. I think a little bit of an underrated band, better than Ezra. Uh, Journey's Next, which uh, is the name of the album that it came from. But this is the pre steve perry version of journey this is you know greg raleigh on lead vocals and progressive rock four piece and next is the title track just you know five and a half minutes of just pure rock glory and then the band handsome not not hans son i'm not talking about those like three blonde brothers i'm talking about handsome with members of uh quicksand and just to brazil and a couple other great bands just did one album in 1997 and uh, just an absolutely incredible oh. album. I mean, one of the most just sheer overlooked albums of all time. And one of the uh, tracks on that album, Thrown Away, which uh, just a complete and utter jam session rounds out my uh, what's in your head. T, what is in your head? Everyone should really listen if you've never heard the handsome album uh, from what year was that? Probably late 90s ish. 97. 97. It's, it's really, really good. It's really, really outstanding record. Great pick. Uh, my three songs I've got uh, Metal Jam uh, from the early 90s by Arcade. This was, uh, was Stephen Piercy's band, uh, the guy from Rat, who formed this side project called Arcade, which was a little bit more straightforward kind of rock direction more so than sort of the hair metal direction that rat was in but obviously a really really good vocalist and they've got a song called cry no more that i've loved for years and years probably one of my top i would say 20 favorite songs of all time the second is uh instant karma this was by a guy named john lennon and uh you know listen at least for me might piss some people off, but maybe his only good solo song. Um, I'm not a huge fan of John Lennon's solo work. I think it's certainly worth visiting and checking out. But I think uh, Instant Karma, certainly helped by Phil Spector, is just an unbelievable, timeless, masterful song with just incredible studio work. This is one of those where you really see Phil Spector's genius and kind of what he did to this one. But and, and, you know, I, we've always been on the same page about John's solo. Uh, work it's it's pretty terrible but instant karma totally stands out you know play drums on instant karma ringo nope alan white from yes really yep long before he was in yes yeah he played 
he did a couple of different things with John Lennon and he, yeah, he played drums in Insta Karma. Actually in the uh the record store day 2020 which never happened because of the uh pandemic. Uh there were several really cool things that were going to come out on record store day that I was excited about. One of them is they're they're re-releasing Insta Karma with a 2020 remix and remaster which the song desperately needs it really badly needs a, a full scrub because yeah the specter stuff is cool but but there's like the mix was awful and so i i was so excited about hearing this and then record store day got uh got canceled and so yeah. hopefully it'll be out soon and we can all hear kind of what this 2020 polish will sound like on insta karma yeah. but yeah absolutely amazing song yeah, looking forward to hearing that as well. Alan White, great drum part. And then my uh, my third song uh, in my head is by The Music, great band out of the UK um, from their Strength in Numbers album called The Left Side. These guys were outstanding. I don't think they're playing together anymore. And they obviously had a really incredible album uh, called Welcome to the North, uh, which was their second record, I believe. And this is their third one, Strength and Numbers. I believe they only got, had those three albums. But The Left Side is is one of the best songs they ever did. And it's uh, it's outstanding. I usually try not to go too many days or certainly too many weeks without that one. So I, I'm not sure if this was your first for sale, Ben, of, uh, of the episodes. Yeah, it was. Yeah. But listen, uh, I really intriguing time period kind of a new you know genre for us um and kind of an important i think what we could both certainly agree on was a very important you know not only rap hip-hop funk jazz type album but certainly a very important time period for for this band and it was fun to you know sort through and talk about and hope you enjoyed it yeah love the pick love the pick really good pick and it's super fun to talk about and we want to thank everybody for tuning in and hopefully people uh, continue to subscribe to us and follow us on our various outlets. And T, I know we're, we're tweeting. We're on Twitter. What's our Twitter handle? Yeah, our Twitter is at the number two underscore twins underscore album. There you go. So if you can't get us there. You can get us at this place. If this is going to be that kind of party, I'm going to stick my... <laughs> Well, listen, thanks, Nubs. And uh, that's a wrap on episode seven. And uh, we will see you soon for episode eight. I think eight comes after seven. I think I got that right. I believe it does. Okay, well, good. It's good to know that that's uh, it's, uh, all adding up correctly. Here on Two Twins and an album. Two Twins <laughs> That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.